Well, let me just begin by thanking you for the effort that you put forth. Some of you put forth a pretty heroic effort just to get yourself out of bed today, and it was maybe a little gloomy, and maybe you were thinking, well, you know, Sandy's not speaking, maybe I'll just sleep in. So for those of you who uh, were tempted to do that and then uh, fought that temptation, uh, thanks for being here. We are winding down this series. It's really been a rich series as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be giving you some dates and uh, some summer speakers, and we'll try to keep our rhythms of, of having one amen uh, once a month throughout the summer just to stay connected, and then we'll launch a, a great year in the fall. Um, Sandy is taking a little break. I'm glad to have this opportunity to, uh, to be with you. To, today, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark chapter 15. So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and open that. And, uh, and while you do that, uh, let me just uh, offer to you a little, a little story that I heard, uh, well, I, I, I had given to me by way of email. And a lot of this stuff that people send me and they say, you got to read this. Unbelievably funny. It never is. So this is a real exception to that rule. It's called the anniversary. Larry, a loving husband, was in trouble. He forgot his wedding anniversary and his wife was really ticked off at him. She told him, tomorrow morning I expect to find a gift in the driveway that goes from zero to 200 in six seconds flat. And it better be there. The next morning, Larry got up really early before work. When his wife woke up a couple hours later, she looked out the window, and sure enough, there was a small gift-wrapped box sitting in the middle of the driveway. Being somewhat confused, she put on her bathrobe, trotted out to the driveway, took the box in the house, and with her excitement and sense of wonder, she ripped off the wrapper, opened the box. In the box was a brand-new bathroom scale. Zero to 200 in six seconds flat. And I love the rest of this. Larry will be in the hospital for an extended period of time and is not yet able to have visitors. Just sort of an insight uh, into life. Rarely does your life, does my life, go according to our plans. We wake early and we try to strategize about how we're going to use our time, how we're going to maximize our opportunities, how we're going to leverage uh, gifts and relationships. And uh, rarely do things go the way that we want them to go. Uh, and I thought about that as it related to the, to the disciples. Uh, at this point in the story, uh, they had to be completely disillusioned. Three years ago, Jesus had called them and they left everything to follow him. They had a front row seat and were able to observe Jesus in action 24-7 for three years. And they saw the, the compassion and the love and the grace that just flowed from him all the time. The class I teach on Sunday mornings, actually it's right here in this room. We talked about the, the prologue, the first few verses in the Gospel of John where it talks about the word becoming flesh that made his dwelling among us, that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth. And we kind of agreed together that when people say to us, and you are full of it, rarely do they mean full of grace and truth. But that was true of Jesus. And what just, what just continually captivates me as I look at the life and ministry of Jesus is how he so intentionally went after those people that everybody else overlooked. The beggars, the, the blind, the lame, the lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. And so Jesus was willing to pour himself into other people knowing that they really had nothing to give him back, nothing but their devotion, nothing but their worship. The disciples saw all this, and now it seems like uh, the train is really uh, getting off the tracks. 
there's tension, there is confusion. And uh, now that Jesus uh, has been arrested and uh, tried before the religious leaders, the disciples, as we looked at last week, the disciples were terrified, scared for their own lives. They, they scatter like a bunch of, of scared cats. Now, I thought about what it would have been like to actually travel with Jesus. To learn from him how to, how to do life in his way. And really, even this, this past week, as I rebooted this portion of the Gospel of Mark, I, I, I sort of crafted a little prayer. I've been carrying this prayer around. I'll just read it to you. And it really has uh, to do with where we're going this morning. This is the prayer I've been praying this week. Jesus, help me to live my life in such a way that my heart overflows with the kind of love and compassion and goodness that flowed from your heart. And not just to the people I'm close to, people who are easy for me to love, but to everyone, especially those uh, that I have a hard time loving. Do you have anybody in your life who, uh, who you have a hard time loving? <laughs> I wonder, uh, they might be sitting at your table this morning. I don't know right now. Uh, I wonder how different your life and mine would look if we, you know, didn't just determine to study the life of Jesus. But actually, with the help of the Holy Spirit, actually began to live out of the life of Jesus and the difference that that would make in our families, the difference that that would make in our places of work if we lived the Jesus life uh, in the ordinary trenches of our day. Uh, if you were here last week, you'll, uh, you'll know that Chuck Colson uh, walked us through uh, the, last, the last section uh, here in Mark 14. And if you have your Bible open, you might just want to glance uh, at some of the headings there. And what you'll see is that the chief priests, that the teachers of the law, uh, begin to interrogate Jesus, and they, uh, they take issue with many things. But one of the primary things that they take issue with is Jesus' claim uh, to be the Messiah to be the Holy One sent from God. And so in their minds, they've already determined the verdict. He's guilty. He is a blasphemer. And what we know from um, Luke's account is that these, these religious leaders actually take Jesus to Pilate first. And we're going to talk more about Pilate in just a moment. But Pilate, once he realizes that Jesus is a Jew, uh, hands him back over to Herod, hoping that Herod will try this case, hoping that Herod will solve the problem. And uh, Jesus is sort of, you know, going back and forth and back and forth uh, with uh, the, the leaders of the day, those who have decision-making power. And so we saw last week that Jesus... Was, was really tried by the religious leaders. We also saw this moment where Peter, the, I call him the, the disciple with uh, a big case of adult ADD. Peter, the one who stands up before all of his other friends and disciples and Jesus and uh, boldly declares, Jesus, uh, I am the one guy that you can count on. If, uh, if all these other guys in this room, this came in the context of, of the uh, upper room. If all these other guys desert you, Jesus, I'm the one guy that you can count on. And while Judas is known as the betrayer, Peter is really known as the one who is the denier. And again, not once, not twice, uh, but three times. Jesus did not conform to uh, what the people were looking for in a Messiah. Jesus refused even to conform to the kind of 
the, the role of a Messiah that his disciples wanted him to be. And now he has been arrested. He has been beaten up. And uh, he had been taken uh, before Pilate. And Pilate, what we know from Luke's gospel, is that Pilate's wife had been given a dream about Jesus. And she doesn't know everything about Jesus, but she knows this, that this is a holy man who is innocent. So Pilate's wife is trying to coach him to be kind to Jesus and not to do anything that would harm him. Just kind of an interesting little side note here. Some of you think your wives meddle in your business. You don't really appreciate the coaching of your wives. I'll tell you something. It's nothing new. It's been going on for a really long time. And often, to our own detriment, we ignore the encouragement, the subtle and not so subtle coaching that our wives give us. Kind of a silly story, but it's about an older couple Uh, The guy determines one night that he wants to go out and get some ice cream. And so he asks his wife, honey, I'm going to get some ice cream. Do you want any? And she says, yes, this is what I want. I want strawberry ice cream. I want hot fudge. And I want some nuts on the top. Okay? She says, you better write it down because you're going to forget. I won't forget. I got a mind like a steel trap. No, you won't. You'll forget it. I won't forget. I've got it. The guy is gone for an hour. He comes back, hands his wife a brown paper bag. She opens the bag, and in it is a ham sandwich. And she says, I knew it! I knew you'd forget the mustard, she says. I've always liked that story. We get stressed out, we get preoccupied. We lose our focus. We lose our sense of God's calling and leading in our lives. All of that is an important background. Jesus has been tried by the religious leaders. He was sent to Pilate. Pilate sent him back to Herod. And we've talked about Herod in the past. And you'll remember that Herod was a Jew, but he worked for Rome. It was Herod's... Herod's job uh, to sort of keep the Jews in their place. But Herod was was sort of a spineless uh, guy, and a lot is written about about him that we don't really have time to go into this morning. But uh, he discerned that trying Jesus' case was, was complicated. It was highly emotionally charged. And there was really no way for him to come out the clear winner. And so Herod transfers Jesus and that case back to Pilate. That's the background for where we are this morning. Jesus is now back in the presence of Herod, having gone through all of these steps. So with that background, let's uh, give ourselves, give our attention to this portion of God's word. This is Mark 15. And again, we'll be reading verses 1 through 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom of the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. 
But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Look at these words. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Let's start with this. And we've got a a number of uh, C's we're going to work through in our outline. And the first C is this, the conspiracy, the conspiracy. The Sanhedrin binds Jesus and brings him before Pilate to be crucified. The conspiracy of the Sanhedrin was basically this. They really wanted to make a a bold, clear statement, not just to Jesus, but to anybody who was watching this drama unfold, that they were not to be messed with. This is what you call um, a a shot across the bow. To say, if you mess with us, the religious status quo of the day will take you out. That was the message. That was the conspiracy. The implication is that they were going to uh, completely silence Jesus and, if need be, even kill him. We're told that they do this early in the morning. They shuffle Jesus off to Pilate. And the implication here is that they wanted to do that before people were up and around so that they wouldn't have to manage uh, any of the of the problems that could have been caused by by Jesus followers. Mark tells us here in verse one that the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, And the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. I'll just tell you, it's very significant that Mark gets to us every single one of the the sects or the the different uh, branches, if you will, of, of those who are in both political and spiritual power. Privately, they had tried the case. They determined that Jesus needed to be stopped. But here's the thing that's ironic to me. Mark gives us the description of all these religious leaders who have gathered to listen to the evidence. I don't know how many men that was, but it was more than a hundred. And not one man in that whole group raised his hand and says, brothers, I think we need to reconsider this. See, the job of all the people in all of those groups was not just to keep order. Their job primarily was to help the nation of Israel discern when the Messiah would come. And so they would pray and they would teach and they would watch and they would wait for the day where God would bring to them the, the Savior, the, the Messiah, the, the long-awaited one. And the irony that you have a room full of religious professionals whose job it was to study all the Old Testament prophecies. And yet here's Jesus standing right there in their midst. And not one of them even sees it. There are, scattered throughout the Old Testament, countless prophecies given about the, not only the appearance of Jesus, but the specific details of his life and ministry. Just days earlier, a crowd gathered, we heard this in Patrick McCarty's prayer, and they lined the streets in Jerusalem as Jesus made his way into the city, riding on a donkey. This is, this is the Palm Sunday verse, Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Again, that prophecy was given by Zechariah hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. And if you're going to be really cynical, you could say, well, you know, it would have been possible if Jesus read that prophecy and wanted to be perceived to be the Messiah, that he could have sent his disciples into the city and just sort of created this moment. Some cynics and skeptics would would say that. But you need to understand that there are countless other prophecies scattered all throughout the Old Testament that that would be um, impossible for Jesus to manufacture. For example, Jesus could not have arranged in advance where he was to be born. And yet the prophet Micah foretold that 700 years before Jesus was actually born. Jesus could not have arranged his own intricate uh, ancestry. He couldn't have arranged how he was born. He couldn't have arranged in advance that he was going to do great miracles. He couldn't have arranged that he was going to be betrayed for a specific amount of money. He couldn't have arranged how he was going to be crucified. Very interesting that the prophecy about Jesus' death and the, the means of his death, crucifixion, was given hundreds of years before crucifixion was even used as a form of, of capital punishment. He couldn't have arranged that they would have pierced him with a spear, which they did. He couldn't have arranged that the soldiers would cast lots for his clothing, and on and on and on and on. Experts say that there are about five dozen major prophecies defining characteristics given to us as if they are a set of fingerprints. And it's like God says, when you find the one individual who has these fingerprints, you found the Messiah. And again, the irony is that you have a, a room full of scholars and not one of them can connect the dots. It's very intriguing. There was a, a mathematician who had some of his graduate students compute the odds of 48 of these prophecies, some of which I've just relayed to you. 46 of these prophecies Becoming true in one person. And this is the uh, this is the the visual aid. This is the word picture that they give us for that. They say, start by imagining the whole earth covered with three foot, three feet of sand. And then expand that so that it's not just covering the earth but it's covering the entire universe, billions of light years across. And then they say, add a trillion, trillion universes. Not two trillion, but a trillion, trillion. We're talking a lot of zeros, all covered with sand. And then they say, imagine one grain of sand being green. You jump in a spaceship, you go in any direction, you stop and you get out, you reach down, and without even looking, you pick up one grain of sand, and it's the green one. And they say that's, that's the mathematical likelihood of all of these prophecies being fulfilled in one person. In a room full of scholars and theologians, and not one of them Catches it. The conspiracy, the complete denial of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. The power of pride and of arrogance 
and the need to see life go my way. You know anybody like that? And how blinding that can be. As we uh, just really seal ourselves off from, from truth. Jesus was right in front of them and they didn't even know it. We see not only the conspiracy against Jesus, but we see the confusion. 15 verse 2. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus is bound, led back to Pilate. And once in his presence, Pilate just repeats the phrase that uh, he has heard other people say. And he asks Jesus, are, are you the king of the Jews? I did some research on Pilate this past week, discovered that there are some conflicting accounts about what this guy is like. This Roman governor. Interesting, the Ethiopian Coptic church recognizes Pilate and his wife Claudia as saints. June 25th is St. Pilate and Claudia Day. Historians paint a different picture. They paint a picture of Pilate being a brutal dictator who despised the Jewish people. It was Pilate's job to administrate all the judicial system. He collected taxes. He would allot what was necessary in the particular province that he was in. And then he would ship the rest off to Rome. And the more he could squeeze out of the Jews and send off to Rome, the more secure his job was. Medieval legend have Pilate being tortured, uh, decapitated, and that he, this is interesting, and that he spent his life compulsively washing his hands. As if trying to somehow distance himself from the role he played in Jesus' death. Pilate was sent back to Rome in March 37 A.D. Some believe that he was sent to Gaul. He committed suicide in 39 A.D. So here's Pilate. Forced to, he's forced to deal with Jesus. He doesn't know what to do with him. He's trying to come out with a win-win, and he doesn't know how to get there. Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You can notice here that how Jesus answers 15.2b. He says, yes, it is as you say. As readers, we're given this window into the exchange between Jesus and Pilate. And with all the injustice, with all the hostility that surrounds this moment, one of the things that we see is that Pilate, at least at this stage, is really trying to be an advocate for Jesus, to find some way for Jesus to be set free. And he's frustrated because Pilate is trying to help Jesus, but it's very clear that Jesus is not helping Pilate help him. And in his role, surely Pilate would uh, have uh, interrogated hundreds of criminals and listened to long stories of people who were, were trying to convince him uh, that they were innocent, that they uh, should not be punished uh, in any way. Uh, it's interesting. And sometimes around the church, I'll be walking down the hall. Maybe it'll be late in the afternoon. And uh, I'll find that somebody uh, has come in and is expressing some need, maybe a need for some money. And this is through sort of a general rule of thumb. The longer their story is, the more likely that it's made up. And some of the stories I have heard people uh, spill out are publishable. It's like it's impossible for that many things to go wrong in one person's life in any given week. And I think Pilate was used to that. And again, the contrast here is very interesting. I think that was the normal experience for Pilate. And now he has Jesus, a man that his wife believes is innocent. And he can't even get Jesus to help him help him. 
So not only is there a conspiracy against Jesus, there's confusion in Pilate's mind and there's silence from Jesus. And that leads to the charges. See, 15, 3 through 5, the slander against Jesus. The Pharisees accuse Jesus of many crimes. Their motive, and you'll see this in verse 10, is really clear. Envy. It was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to Pilate. And they began to slander Jesus. And they began to make up whatever lies or stories need to be made up in order for Jesus to be taken out of the picture. And I've been thinking about that, that notion of, of being slandered, of being misunderstood, about what it's like to have lies spoken about of, of you. Some of you have experienced that in a business relationship. Maybe you forged a relationship and you thought everybody was on the same page. And somewhere along the way, you got cattywampus with one of your partners. And from that moment on, there, were, there was a smear campaign where your credibility and your integrity was brought into question. And you know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that kind of hurt. Some of you experienced that in the context of your marriage. A person that you stood and vowed that you would be with them forever. And you remember a time, maybe for some of you, a time not so long ago, where you sat in an attorney's office and you listened to a long string of just lies and deceptions that were being leveled at you. And the heartache, the sense of betrayal, the sense of confusion. And you were far from perfect, but you didn't deserve that. And for some of you who have experienced that, and maybe those wounds are still really fresh, I want you to know this. Jesus understands. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our needs. Because he was tempted, he was tested in every way, just as we are. And so for those of you who have experienced that kind of heartache, that kind of betrayal, I, I want you to know that Jesus, Jesus knows how to bring healing into your life. Jesus knows what that feels like. And so the religious leaders just assault Jesus with one charge after another charge after another charge. And it's as if Jesus just absorbs that. He makes no reply. 15 verse 5. And this too, I believe, points to not just his character, but his uh, the, the uh, validation of his role as the Messiah. Look at these words from Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus is showing us not only a fulfillment of prophecy, but this very important truth that nothing and no one, not even Pilate, not even a Roman governor is going to interfere with God's 
design and plan for his life. And so rather than working out some plea bargain with Pilate, Jesus stands there and just absorbs it. My friend Brent Stenberg gave me this great insight about leadership. And this is what he said. He said, people express pain. Leaders absorb pain. It's exactly what Jesus is doing right here. Jesus, who said to his disciples in Matthew 20, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And here's the rest. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That was his mission. That was his calling. And instead of defending himself, he just embraced the role that God had given him, even though it came at a great cost. D, the custom. Chapter 6 tells us that it had been the custom for Rome for quite some time to release one Jewish prisoner each year at Passover. It was an act of goodwill. It was a way somehow to maybe relieve some of the tensions that tended to erupt uh, on a regular basis between Rome and between the Jews. It was the custom that led to a choice. E, verses 7 through 14, the crowd demands the deliverance of Barabbas, the murderer. It's very interesting. From the different gospel accounts, we can piece together a few things about this man, Barabbas. He was a thief. He was, he was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist, which meant that he was a terrorist. That's the best word. He was a thug. And everybody knew it. And yet, amazingly, when, when Pilate asks the crowd, who do you want released? I really believe in his mind he was thinking, well, for sure they're going to say Jesus. I mean, compared to this thug, it's a no-brainer. And then to his amazement, and I think really to his horror, instead of screaming out Jesus' name, the crowd, the same crowd who just day, days earlier <laughs> lifted their voices, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It says we want he, Barabbas. He's our guy. Give us him. Some of the, and you'll see this textual note in your uh, Ref, Spirit of the Reformation Bible uh, under verse 7. That some of the early manuscripts believe that um, Barabbas' first name was actually Jesus. So there's an interesting play on, on words here. Two different messiahs, two different Jesus given to us. The Jesus Barabbas, the political enemy of Rome, the one who had been thrown in jail for his subversive activity, violent, profane, dangerous. And then the other Jesus, Jesus, the Nazarene, the miracle working Messiah, the one who led with humility and grace and love. The contrast between these two men could hardly be more dramatic. And any comparison that I offer would break down, but it would it would be like saying, here's. Osama bin Laden, and here's Billy Graham. Who's your guy? And then have the whole crowd say, Bin Laden's our guy. And Pilate is just in disbelief. He's amazed at all of this. And he knows, he knows that the tension is only getting more severe, more severe, the insanity of all this. But he knows there's no turning back. 
And so he motions to the guards to let Barabbas go. And again, I really think in Pilate's mind, this was this was the dominant line of thinking. Well, they got their guy. Maybe now they'll just go away. Maybe now the mob will just sort of dissipate and things can go back to normal. I really think that's 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 what was going on in Pilate's mind. And so with all of that, Pilate asks a question that I think for him was really more of a rhetorical question. He turns to Jesus and says, verse 12, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? I think at that moment he was expecting the crowd to say something like this. You know, Forget about him. We don't care about him. We got our guy. We're going on with life. And yet, much to his shock and horror, the crowd answers back, crucify him. And we see here again the positioning of Pilate as he tries to to be an advocate for Jesus. Verse 14, why? What crime has he committed? He's trying to find some way out. And yet in response to that question, the crowd just responds even louder. Crucify him, they say. The crowd demands the death of Jesus, the Messiah. And here's I want to draw as we pull this together. I want to draw your attention to the role that Jesus played in Barabbas's release and freedom. It's a picture of redemption. And it comes in the most unlikely of places extended to the most unlikely of people. Jesus takes the place of a criminal, a thief, a murderer. The thug goes free and the cross that I believe was ready and waiting in the wings and that had been carved and prepared for Barabbas is the cross that Jesus picks up and carries himself. In theological terms, this is called substitutionary atonement. That Jesus, who lived a perfect life and had a perfect record and enjoyed an untainted, perfect relationship with the Father, takes takes your record, your moral crimes, your rebellion, your sin, and then he gives you and then he gives you your his record, so that now you have the perfect record. And you have the clear conscience and that you have the untainted, perfect relationship with the Father. Jesus took your record. Jesus gave to you his. So that now when God the Father looks at you, all he sees, listen, all he sees is the perfect moral performance of his son. That's the gospel. We see that picture here with Barabbas. The guilty criminal goes free and Jesus, who is holy and perfect, takes his place. We don't have a lot of, un- a lot of time to unpack this, but you need to know that this theme is, is woven all throughout the Bible, all throughout redemptive history. One day, God was having a conversation with a man named Abraham. And God said to Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. And he kind of chuckled because he was old. And not only that, he knew his wife was old. And in terms that we use today, Sarah, his, his wife, had already gone through menopause. And God says, you know, I'm going to give you an heir. I'm going to give you a son. And they waited and they wondered and they prayed. And God was true. 
to his promise. And they gave, gave to Abraham and Sarah little Isaac, the wonder boy. Interesting, I was with a couple yesterday who has just had a, just a string of difficulty trying to conceive when they've gone the way of adoption and they've had one disappointment followed by another, followed by another. They were literally on their way to pick up their son yesterday. And they received a call that had some news in it and everything just fell apart and all their dreams and all their hopes just turned into a pile of ashes. And I think about this moment in Abraham's life. God says, I, I'm going to give you a son. But then God goes on to say this. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will tell you about. As a dad, as a father of four, this moment is unimaginable. But Abraham, in his obedience to God, gets a donkey and his son and he makes his way to the mountain. And if you know the story, you'll remember that as they climb up the mountain, little Isaac says to his dad, Father, the wood and the fire are here, but where's the lamb? Just imagine the lump in Abraham's throat at that moment. And the confidence, God will provide a lamb, son. And Abraham went so far as to bind up his son, this boy, this little body that he held in his arms and checked on at night and read stories to and played with that body, that boy. He placed on the altar. And with his hand in the air, with the knife ready to plunge it into the chest of his son, he, he hears the voice of an angel. I would imagine he was looking for any voice at that time. And the angel says, Abraham, don't do it. And then God goes on to give us these great words. This is Genesis 22, verse 13. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place. The Lord will provide. And to this day, and to this day, it is, it says, on this mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Substitutionary atonement. It's a picture of a ram that took the place of Isaac. And all of that, men, was pointing to the day when the perfect lamb would be slain, and on that day, there would be no voice from heaven rescuing Jesus. There would be the perfect lamb that was given up for you and given up for me. And right here in this story, in the most unlikely place, with the most unlikely person, we get a picture of the gospel being lived out, not just for Barabbas, but for anybody who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. Sometimes, men, I think we go through life with such a low view of ourselves. And we wouldn't say it, but this is what we think. I know God loves me. That's kind of like his job. He has to. But he doesn't like me. He just kind of puts up with me. And we live so Beneath our, our privileges, so beneath our standing. Here's the, here's the real news. This, this room is filled with Barabbases. 
And Jesus took our place. Jesus carried our cross. Jesus took our punishment so that we would go free. The story ends with the chastening. I was going to uh, show you a film clip from the movie The Passion of the Christ. But um, and Sandy would love to hear this. The technology messed up this morning. So I wasn't able to do that. But it was just a picture of, of the, the brutality that Jesus suffered uh, after his trial. And that every, every stroke of that whip and the punching and the spitting and all the mockery, all of it was done with you in mind. All of it would have been offered if you were the only person on this earth. Tell you what that means for me. I hope it means for you. That you're valuable. That you're loved by God with a love that you cannot even fathom. That Jesus took all of your punishment so you don't have to walk around today beating yourself up for the failures and sins that you commit. Jesus already did that for you. He doesn't need any help. It's all complete. It's already done. And so let us, with the help of the Spirit, live out that clean record and the freedom of any condemnation that really can transform your life and mine and all of our relationships. Lord Jesus, we thank you for absorbing the brutality for us. That you became the wrath of the Father so that we would only know the love and mercy and acceptance of our Abba in heaven. Would you help us today to live in light of that truth, that you don't need us to crucify ourselves. You've already been crucified for us. Teach us what it means to live out the freedom and the hope of the gospel that you made possible through your death and life. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers, have a great day.